90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty well. Um, it's been very quiet here this week. Definitely not like your week. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the internet melted on Tuesday. <laughs> I'm, I, I still watch cat videos. I don't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> I meant so I So Amazon, <laughs> right, Amazon Web Services, specifically the, the S3 storage, uh, had a prolonged multi-hour outage <laughs> on Tuesday, which meant that a lot of internet services that depend on it didn't work. So you notice, like, uh, Slack wasn't great. Uh, a lot of the continuous integration tools that we use at work, uh, well. things like avatars on a lot of websites didn't load. Uh, Nest was down because of it. There was a lot of stuff that was down, and a lot of people running around... Uh, I'm sure at Amazon, you know, saying, ah, the servers are on fire. <laughs> and some of the other companies, one company that depended on S3, uh, tweeted a picture of somebody curled up in the floor and said, <laughs> we're just staying like this until it's over. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. And of course, on top of this, I mean, there was a pretty big severe weather outbreak too, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So there were some tornadoes in Illinois and at the same time, the K-Lot radar, the WSR-88D, went down as well. Oh, unbelievable. <laughs> yes, so there was a lot of uh, crazy atmospheric things going on with equipment malfunctions, and it was a interesting day. Oh, well, everyone survived. Yes. Yeah, no, it uh, all turned out pretty good. Things are catching up as we're recording this. Excellent. <laughs> and hopefully the rest of the week will be quiet. I know it's supposed to get nice and warm here again, uh, you know, 70s this weekend, so yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Yes, exactly. Amen Are you that. going back into the field? Uh, no, no, thank goodness. Um, it's my own field work from here on in. <laughs> oh, yeah, that is pretty lucky. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm sure the weekend that we're going out, it'll be like 30 degrees, but, well, let's hope for the best. Right. <laughs> but, well, we're going to have a special guest join us today, right? Yeah, I'm very excited about this, mostly because I don't know a lot about it. And, you know, I like talking about geophysics. <laughs> right. And it's one that our listeners are very excited about as well. I put a call out for questions about this since it was a listener requested episode, and we got a lot. So, mm -hmm. strap in. It might be a little bit of a long show, <laughs> but we're really happy to have. Robert Busby join us from the Transportable Array. Hi, how are you? I'm very fine, thank you. Great. Well, like I said, this has been one of those shows that we've had lots of listeners request, and a previous guest of the show, Dr. Charles Amon, recommended that we get you on to talk about it. And we have lots of listener questions. But before we <laughs> dive into the Transportable Array and Earthscope, would you mind telling us a little bit about your background? Sure. Uh, I was an undergraduate student at uh, University of Wyoming. I grew up in Wyoming. And uh, at that time, I was a student in the astronomy department and spent some time on the uh, mountaintop telescope that they have there. I graduated and then went to University of Colorado in Boulder, where I joined the lab with the National Bureau of Standards. Uh, my advisor, Judah Levine, did work on uh, time and frequency uh, standards. <clears throat> and uh, he had an interest in 
geophysics and applying physics to uh, precise measurement of geophysical problems, laser distance measurement, and there was a, a project going to measure the tilt of Yellowstone Park, so I thought this was an interesting uh, uh, problem, both from an instrumentation and physics point of view, but also it was uh, near where I grew up, so it, it had a lot of interest for me. So that's how I got into it. So I don't see how you can grow up in Wyoming and not, especially near Yellowstone, and not sort of pay attention to the geology of the area, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. There was lots of uh, hiking and camping and uh, mountain climbing and so on. So uh, it was it was in your face. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so, you know, you said you spent some time with telescopes, which sounds like that'd be a lot of fun, and <laughs> then worked with standards. So how did you end up working with the the transportable array or the U.S. array? Well, uh, from graduate school, uh, at that time at the University of Colorado, the, <clears throat> it was the very beginning of uh, GPS-based measurements. In fact, we received one of the very first... Um, GPS uh, instruments uh, in our lab and set it up and learned that you could uh, uh, get the location of where the antenna was uh, placed just on a screen. It was a remarkable uh, uh, kind of device. And so <clears throat> that attracted people like uh, Roger Bellum from, uh, at that time he was at Columbia University and was a geodesist and uh, geophysicist, and he came to visit the lab uh, and explained a lot of the uh, other measurements that were going on in the world and so on. <clears throat> At that time, I was uh, getting a little disappointed with the physics curriculum at the University of Colorado because it was kind of focused on quantum mechanics and a lot of uh, math drudgery, I thought, and, and uh <laughs> Roger explained a lot of these sort of adventure uh, projects that were out there. <clears throat> and so he recommended that uh, I could actually just get a job in uh, instrumentation and uh, field engineering and so on. So I left after getting my master's and, and moved to uh, Columbia University where they were doing a lot of field uh, work in seismology and other places. At that time, there was a uh, project related to strong ground motion and uh, building code standards uh, in the East Coast led by Klaus Jacob, uh, National Center for Earthquake Engineering Research. So they were starting a measurement program and I was hired as one of the engineers to uh, deploy instruments and so on. And uh, after that, a uh, couple of years, two or three years later, uh, this IRIS program, uh, the Incorporated Research Institutions for Seismology, started a portable uh, instrument program where they would have a pool of instruments and then uh, loan them out to somebody who had a, an interesting idea. But you needed a supporting engineer to go along with uh, these uh, deployments. So I started doing that. And this was in 91 to 94 or so. So we ended up going around and seeing many places in the world, many types of environments, uh, while trying to uh, keep the instruments working and, and uh, pursue what science objective the individual PI may have, may have had for that. So it began a long <clears throat> kind of history of, of uh, 
supporting instrumentation in the field. I left that in '94, uh, sort of continued as a consultant. I became a consulting engineer for my own uh, company and worked uh, uh, both for IRS as a consulting engineer as well as other people like uh, equipment manufacturers doing national networks and uh, for Caltech as they were just uh, beginning the Southern California uh, seismic network. So began to sort of design and develop uh, uh, network-based um, uh, instrumentation systems and and earthquake monitoring from from not just one station but multiple stations and uh, so that's how I got into that and then the the idea of the transportable array <coughs> was getting more traction it was sort of a an expansion of the earlier work that I had done where individual PIs would put out 20 to 50 instruments or something like that and the transportable array was kind of born on the idea that why don't we just do the whole continent in one shot and then we don't have to do piecemeal type of things. And that's a fairly audacious idea. <laughs> right. <laughs> Is, so I guess for our listeners who don't know, even though obviously a lot of them do and are very interested in this, could you just sort of, what is the transportable array then? So the transportable arrays is, the idea is to put out a grid of, of seismometers, so one every 40 miles or 70 kilometers, and then be able to use passive uh, sources, earthquakes, to um, image the structure underneath the, the continent from sort of shallow crustal depths of maybe five kilometers down to the core mantle boundary. And so the bigger the array, the more of an image that you can create in one shot. And unfortunately, as they began to scope out the size of the project and, and so on, you realize you couldn't actually cover the whole continent <laughs> with enough instruments. That's almost <laughs> 2,000. So they had to pare that back, and they settled on an idea where they would just have about 400 or so at a time, and these 400 would kind of march across the country in a almost like a fax machine in the old days or a, a scanning device nowadays would do uh, uh, an imaging program. But you would have a big patch of the, the country covered and then you'd slowly move across. So that became much more of a logistical um, problem and a lot of difficulty in uh, setting up the instruments for just a short period of time and then uh, taking them down again. So it was a kind of funny government job of digging holes and filling them in again. So. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, how long well, do they stay in place then uh, when you guys first started? So we, uh, at the beginning it was a little bit slow, but uh, it, it ended up, uh, the stations would operate for two years at a time. So you'd put them in and then two years later come back, pick them up, and then you'd move them uh, leapfrogging across the, all the rest of the stations further to the east. and. Uh, place them again for two years, and each station hopped about uh, four times uh, across the continent. So we started in California and did some work there, moved up to Oregon and Washington, and then got the full array developed from the Pacific Coast out to about Yellowstone. That's 400 instruments um, from the northern border to the southern border. And then we would move them about uh, 20 per month or 200 per year, um, eastward north and south uh, south in the summer in the 
in the wintertime and north in the summertime and move the, move the way across. And there's a little video of this so I can give you a link to so you can kind of imagine how that actually works. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, we'll put it in the in the notes for sure. And it, it sounds like, you know, you said it's this kind of funny job of digging holes and filling them back in again. But I cannot even really imagine the uh, the logistics involved with managing hundreds of instruments at once, leapfrogging them across, making sure that they're actually working. And I'm assuming there may have been some maintenance visits. Uh, so how did you end up orchestrating all of that? So, so my job is the manager of the, the project, and that involved both uh, acquiring sort of the instrumentation and making sure the station design worked. But we assembled a staff of about uh, 30 people, and uh, approximately half of those people were the the field group. That is, they were full-time out in the field working every day. It wasn't just a, a two-week summer stint or something like that. They were, they were every day in the job. And so this involved um, about four or five people that did nothing but uh, dig the holes, uh, did the construction work where they would have a backhoe. We actually owned a backhoe and would haul it around and, and dig holes and stick a tank in the ground and set up some of the cabling and, and posts. And then we had uh, two teams of two engineers apiece, so four altogether, uh, that would work independently to install the scientific instruments, the seismometer, which would sit in the bottom of the hole, and the recording electronics, which are, are mounted higher up, and then solar panels for uh, providing uh, power. And so these uh, four individuals would uh, move along about a month behind the construction group and uh, set up the instruments. And we had another team of uh, two to three people who would do uh, repairs and maintenance and, and fix problems that would arise at any time, maybe even a month after install or or could be uh, up to, to 18 months later. We had finally one additional team, which was uh, the removal team, and they would come and collect the instruments, pack them into utility trailers, and then uh, dig up the hole or fill in the hole and and move on to the next one so they would pack up all these trailers and then uh, at the end of each month they would drive the trailer uh, about uh, 400 miles to the east and then wow. leave the trailer <laughs> for the install guys who would pick up that trailer for that month and and go on so it was a roving uh, uh rolling kind of experiment and it, it, it was quite an effort to actually set that whole uh, chain of, of events in motion and we would suffer occasionally when you know weather would slow up the beginning of the the train and and so just like a traffic accident or whatever the, the rest of the team would kind of get <laughs> backed up behind them and people would move ahead to try to help the construction guys so it, it was a real you know team effort with lots of people and, and, the, and the same sort of process uh, kind of occurred with the data flow because uh, in the early days when this project was envisioned, it was, believe it or not, before the age of uh, cell phones. And <laughs> there were cellular telephones, but they were not used for data. In fact, we had to sort of sneak uh, our data connections onto the cellular networks while we were working in California, Oregon, Washington. <laughs> the, 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 Companies did not want us to make a permanent or a continuous connection. They wanted you to make a call and hang up. Uh, 
Yep. And so we had to design the instruments to sort of do this uh, in the background so that they wouldn't notice that we were sending lots of <laughs> uh, data across <laughs> the network. And eventually they came around to, uh, you know, data as a normal thing that you would actually want to have a, a contract with the company to continuously. And so that actually turned into a huge advantage to us because we could more easily set up our uh, data telemetry <clears throat> through cellular uh, connections rather than the way the project was originally envisioned required a, a satellite dish at every site, which takes oh, lots of power and lots of effort <laughs> to set up and so on. So we, we got really lucky riding the wave of, of uh, cellular data connections. Well, as soon as they figured out they could charge you for it, I guess that was okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, they made the mistake of giving us an unlimited data plan. and that Oh, we, beautiful. <laughs> we send about four gigabytes a day, so it's... Uh, it's, it's is, that, is that per instrument or for the network? Uh, it's for the network. So each, each, okay. each instrument sends about... Uh, maybe well it's gone up we started it was about 25 megabytes a day and and now the stations because of additional channels and higher sampling rates some strong motion instruments are at, at some of the stations so we can send up to um, 80 to 100 megabytes a day per station or kind of pushing uh, the 5 to 10 gigabyte uh, limit per month of each station and overall you know in the lower 48 we've recorded about uh, 25 terabytes of data, I would say. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's a lot. And so I, I'm an instrumentation person myself. I really like instruments and trying to you know ruggedize them and take them to the field. I imagine there was a lot of thought that went into the packaging of these stations, right? Because you had to be able to deploy them and they had to be rugged enough to stay out for two years, but then easily broken down, packed up, and moved on, and reusable. So what was that process like? So most of the ruggedization that, that we were focused on was how the instruments could survive while being deployed with, with a design goal of having almost no service. In fact, we were pretty successful in that. About 60% of the stations uh, once deployed, were never visited until two years later they were picked up and, and moved on to the next thing. And, and if most of the service visits were for something quite minor. But that goes into the design of a sort, of, sort of the enclosure. So we, uh, while I was at Caltech in Southern California, they had been experimenting with this tank-like design that allows you to <clears throat> uh, put all the uh, instruments underground. This protects them from uh, changing temperatures, which improves the data noise uh, somewhat, especially for the seismometer, um, but also allows you to adapt the instruments <clears throat> to new changes or, or different uh, interconnection arrangements, all within the same overall environmental enclosure. So the, the tank design we developed um, allowed us to sort of adapt to more and more different kinds of instruments all within the same uh, basic enclosure. So we, we depended on this tank to sort of protect us uh, from all sorts of things, floods, uh, fires, there was been forest fires go right across the instruments. Uh, one of the instruments never survived the uh, hurricane flooding in, in Louisiana. That was one of the few we ever 
lost and didn't mm-hmm. ever recover. But uh, for the most part, it was the tank design that that um, uh, helped that. And then we would put the seismometers <clears throat> in the bottom of the tank, enclosed in sand, w- with the bilge pumps as a sort of backup in case the tank uh, did leak. It would pump the water out, and the and the station would sort of survive. So. We, we didn't depend on moving those tanks necessarily between each site. For one, uh, many of the landowners preferred that we just leave the tanks in the ground after we were done. They, most of them were interested in the science project continuing, but if, if not, they, they didn't see any problem with having this tank wherever it was. So that was uh, one reason we didn't have to do that. And the rest of the stuff the seismometer and the and the electronics instruments could be packed up in fairly small bundles about maybe uh, eight cubic feet or so and therefore we could put six or eight stations inside of a single uh, uh, utility truck that the the crew would drive around in and and so they could do lots of stations without ever going back to a, a warehouse or a depot we use just the storage locations in in many places with the roll-up door and so on but <clears throat> the, you'd end up putting about a million dollars worth of equipment inside of the, the storage locker oh man <laughs> so yeah, how much was each station then roughly i mean i know you had you had a broadband maybe some strong motion some of them had environment packages and infrasound yep uh, and then telemetry. So you add all that up, and that's getting pretty expensive. It's about $42,000 in the hole. And that was one of the things the <laughs> landowners couldn't quite believe that, well, you're just going to put this here, and you don't need any kind of a, you know, protection, or what happens if it gets uh, stolen or something. And n- none ever got stolen in, in the lower 48. In fact, very few were even disturbed, uh, except we've had some solar panels broken uh, when we had some in some schoolyards and nothing really ever got uh, damaged by a sort of malicious uh, behavior farmers would run into the tanks or something if they forgot that the whole thing was there and would would be uh, plowing their fields and occasionally would uh, damage the tank that way but for the most part you know people were very nice to host the uh, the stations so when we had the Prague earthquake here in Oklahoma, I remember that was one of my graduate student duties because although I'm a geologist, I dabble in geophysics. And they said, go out ahead of us and ask people if we can dig these things and leave them in their yards. <laughs> and so that was, I mean, it was hard at first, but how how did you guys do that? Explain to the landowner, you know, what you're doing and let them leave this $40,000 in their in their yards. So actually, we relied on students. So <laughs> <laughs> we we had a strategy whereby we would we would try to uh, hire students from local universities, and I think this was it was sort of a lucky uh, um, approach. Uh, it wasn't really well thought out at the very <laughs> beginning, but it it sort of worked in the sense that we wanted to give. Um, students the opportunity to participate for one and then to give them something meaningful uh, uh, to do towards the project but it required a lot of preparation on our part to um, we would spend uh, 
a week or so at a, a location, uh, bring in uh, probably 10 teams of pairs of students uh, with a professor from a local university. And we would teach uh, a, a week-long course on, so here's the information, here's about the project, here's approaches that you can uh, use in discussing the science with the landowners, and so on. And, and here's the type of report that you need to make uh, related to the place that you have finally picked. So we had to teach them about the criteria that we're, we wanted to have and um, and how you can document that, how you check that the cell motor might work, uh, check the ground conditions. All of these things were in a sort of um, almost workbook-like uh, uh, materials that they would they would go through. But <clears throat> the biggest thing, and we would explain this to students, and they were very skeptical at the beginning of this, uh, to, to, to tell them that this is actually a, a terrific educational experience for you because, <clears throat> number one, you, you will be, for the first time, acting like or, or being a professional scientist, and therefore you have to explain to the public what this science project is, and you have to kind of advocate for a certain uh, outcome and you'd like to put this station here if they will let you and you have to be able to engage with them in a dialogue about well what are they interested in why do they think this might be interesting why do you think it would be a good idea and, and so on and so they would have to <clears throat> kind of um, wear the mantle of a scientist for the first time and and uh, I think many of them came away with that experience as being a, a profound sort of change that it sort of s set them on a course. And uh, we, we also had, you know, deliverables and things like that. So that was the other thing we, we would teach the student. This is a job. We're paying you to do, go out and find uh, 20 sites, each student, and we're giving you 10 weeks to do it. And if you finish early, great. No problem. Have fun the rest of the summer. If, if you wait and delay it until the very end of the year, um, th then we'll keep haranguing you. So uh, it was <laughs> it was very much like a job, but but a real science job. Man, I didn't get paid to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, listener Joe had asked that, and also, you know, is there any? Was there a lot of convincing to do, or did you find that people were pretty receptive to you burying this big barrel with forty thousand dollars worth of equipment in their backyard? Yeah, it's about the size of a refrigerator when you when you and we did bring a real backhoe and dig a hole, so it was you know something that the landowners needed to consider, and we wanted to make sure that the the students actually conveyed um, what these the scale of the thing. So after the students were done and completed their report. We would then send around uh, a verification team, so some people who have done uh, this kind of work, and they would interview the landowner, make sure that the site was good and that they were uh, uh, interested really in the project and so on. But for the most part, um, once the landowners learned that it was a university-based uh, research project, that students were involved, and in fact, students from a nearby university, not from, you know, 10 states away or something like that, but they were typically, you know, within driving range of that 
place, so that was one of the motivations for hiring local students. But then also they became interested in the science. So after that, many of the, the these rural uh, properties weren't all that concerned about the disturbance. It was just a fairly you know, minor uh, impact on their land, but they would, we actually have a website that shows um, the recordings of that particular station with the earthquakes that are they're annotated on that particular <coughs> uh, website and you can see what's happening uh, on their property and many of the landowners kind of adopted that website as their station and their data and they, they were proud of it they would show their neighbors and friends and family you know here's here's what's happening on my <laughs> land and that's right. why they became interested you know, they have a station and nobody else in the neighborhood does. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. <laughs> yeah, and there were a few uh, legacy stations that were left behind as well. And actually, one of them is maybe two or three miles north of the farm I grew up on. <laughs> and, you know, I know that it's always neat to go back and look there and look at the recording of different earthquakes there just because, well, it's somewhere you know. It's fun. That's right. Yeah, there were there were quite a few uh, sites that ended up being left. Um, overall, about uh, two hundred out of the eighteen hundred sites that were uh, occupied in the uh, lower forty-eight, about two hundred remain operating. Um, some of those were uh, individual states: uh, Oklahoma, Cal Colorado, Ohio. Uh, had interest in continuing monitoring uh, primarily for fracking activities and things like that. Other states, Arkansas had interest in seismicity due to New Madrid, and Pennsylvania had interest uh, because of the fracking, and the state geologists wanted to establish a, a better uh, permanent network there and so on. So various organizations um, uh, wanted to keep the c capability uh, going and, and found ways to do that. And then a, a sort of bigger effort uh, was spawned right after the Mineral Virginia earthquake to um, keep a big swath of, of stations. We called it one in four or uh, one out of every four uh, TA stations could be left and, and provide a big backbone for um, the sort of rare events that happen in the east, they're not very well recorded because the seismometers are usually in pockets right around the seismicity, but invariably the, the interesting earthquakes are, are outside those regions. They pop up in unusual places. Right. And so, it, yeah, they, they always report that the damage earth, earthquake was on an unknown fault. So. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a well-known fact about instrumentation, is if you want to ensure that the phenomena that you're studying never occurs <laughs> in your study area, put instruments out. Right. Uh, <laughs> lots of, yeah. We've actually had almost the opposite uh, luck, uh, really. Um, we, we arrived in Oklahoma just as the upswing in inseismicity occurred, associated <laughs> with uh, oil and gas activity and, and so on. And we, we happened to be in kind of the right place for the v Mineral Virginia earthquake and a number of other kind of unusual events, uh, we happen to be uh, right there. And that's continued even last year uh, in Alaska. We had just put stations out, and there was the January of 2016. It was a 7.1 earthquake, 
pretty much surrounding uh, or our instruments were surrounding that that event so we've been lucky yeah that's some serendipity for sure (laughs) (laughs) so you know we've talked about the lower 48 quite a bit and we had several questions from listeners uh michael and elisa about the deployment that's now going on in alaska and that's probably a lot different than doing field work in the lower 48. Yeah, the, the logistics and the planning are considerably different. Uh, in this case, we can cover all of Alaska and portions of Yukon and British Columbia. We kind of went over, colored outside the lines a little bit to go into Canada. <laughs> but, um, we can do all that with, with about uh, uh, 200 or so instruments. It totals about 270 with some existing stations that are there, but we put in 200 more. So we can do that in one kind of deployment. We don't have to do a rolling thing. But the deal is there's no roads or anything in the, like that in Alaska. You can go around the, the coast by boat, but that's pretty slow. So much of the remote field work had the same sort of strategy. We wanted to put a station every 50 miles in this case and cover the entire uh, region. And, and there, there's a very active subduction zone with the slab sliding underneath. Uh, uh, Denali and uh, it's it's dramatic place to to work both <clears throat> from an earthquake perspective but the, the geology and the uh, geography are, are you know spectacular but the logistics are quite difficult and there you have to get around uh, to many of the stations by helicopter and so we have a had to redesign our station such that it was much lighter and uh, did not involve burying a big tank in the ground we couldn't come up with a way to uh, make an excavation that would uh, would be lightweight and transportable. So we migrated to a different design where we would just insert the seismometer in a uh, shallow borehole that was only six inches in diameter and about three meters deep. But then we would put all the equipment in an above ground hut and that hut would be sort of the inverse of a, a tank in which case the hut would have the solar panels mounted directly on it and everything uh, put inside. So the seismometer was the only thing underground. But that required kind of first experimenting with, well, can you put a seismometer in frozen ground and not have it become frost-jacked or, or disturbed by frozen ground tilting around? Does it even make sense to do that? So we did some early trials, and, and sure enough, it actually is... Uh, it turns out the frozen ground is hard as a rock, so <laughs> it, it, it performs very well. And, and then we had, once deciding that, okay, the seismometer works well, how do we actually make this hole? And we experimented with, you know, you can just hire a driller in Alaska easily enough along the roads, but um, we, we wanted to be able to <clears throat> go to places where we could pick an outcrop and uh, go just deep enough to where the seismometer would be stable but not spend a lot of extra weight and money on um, drilling really deep. So we, we had to come up with a lightweight, uh, specialized kind of drill that would make the hole that we needed, uh, sleeve the thin hole with uh, a steel casing, and make a good place for the seismometer. 
um, but still be light enough and easily maneuverable that uh, a helicopter could pick it up and, and fly it 90 miles um, easily and drop it down and then uh, drill another hole and, and continue on. So the whole project's logistics then turned into a kind of um, a migration from a single kind of camp or, or village, small village, and you would go out in a spoke pattern to four or five, maybe six uh, stations, and then hop to the next sort of hub and do a four or five little uh, spoke-like thing. And then these campaigns would last for <clears throat> two or three weeks, and then uh, usually we'd just swap in another uh, team and they would carry on. <clears throat> a, a different driller would operate the drill, uh, uh, but the helicopter crews would swap out their uh, uh, staff as well, and, and the and the progress would continue. So we worked all summer, last summer, doing that about, put in about uh, 70 stations. And right now the network there is, uh, uh, at the moment, a total of about 200, well, 190 stations. Uh, we'll add another 70 new stations uh, next year in uh, quite remote regions. Now we've done most of the areas that are uh, close by the airports and and things like that, or uh, in the northern part off of the Dalton Highway or the, the Pipeline Highway. <clears throat> so what's left is the ones in very remote regions in northern Canada, at the Beaufort Sea, and then uh, western Alaska. So it's it's taken a while to kind of get the exact logistic plan and the exact kind of equipment optimized, but <clears throat> the results are are. Uh, terrific, actually. The seismometers work better there than they they did in the lower 48. So Wow. So yeah. one of our listeners, listener Matt, had asked, when are you doing Canada? So I guess you've kind of already done a little bit of it. We have about 50 stations, yeah, in the Yukon and, and British Columbia. But as it turns out, uh, at the moment, the Canadians are quite excited by this program, which has hopped, you know, went past them in Oregon and Washington and now it's up in <laughs> Alaska and they're proposing to to uh, use the same capability basically invite us in and, and uh, install an array in British Columbia that would fit in between uh, Yukon and, and Oregon and Washington and fill in the imaging all along the uh, subduction zone there which is quite enigmatic where it goes from a subducting slab in Oregon and Washington to a different uh, slab in in uh, Alaska going the other direction, right. and, and it's mostly strike slip along the uh, Queen Charlotte Islands and Haida Gwaii, and uh, so that transition is a little bit uh, difficult to imagine. And the imaging that this array can do would would sort of uh, clear up a lot of hypotheses uh, about how that uh, transition works and. So the Canadians are, are trying to propose such a thing. It will probably take them uh, three or four years to get it uh, ready. And by that time, we'll be finishing up in Alaska. We, we plan to finish in Alaska in 2019 or 2020. And then so we, we could be ready to move into British Columbia. But I don't think we'll go all the way across Canada. That's <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, you know, in all these far northern stations... You said the permafrost was great because it was hard as rock, but did you see any, this is uh, listener Eliza, did you see any effects from you know the steady departure 
from normal mean annual temperatures or erosion, wildfires, anything like that. I mean, there's several things up there that could make uh, the field situation dynamically changing. Yeah, so one of the biggest changes, uh, there's there's two big things. The permafrost is thawing, and, and actually we work with the University of Alaska, Fairbanks, and NASA on a project to insert uh, thermistor strings into the ground at, a, at each of our sites. And the National Weather Service has uh, worked with us to, to provide meteorological instruments where we measure the wind speed, wind direction, and we add this to our telemetry um, so that they can improve the weather forecasting. But the, the permafrost um, melts in a kind of funny way. There's an active layer in which uh, the topmost portion of the permafrost becomes uh, not frozen. And then that might extend down to a depth of a meter or so. And, and as it warms, it gets a little bit deeper and deeper. So that starts to impact um, where our instruments are buried. We try to get them two and a half meters deep. So uh, that can introduce problems. We don't see that just yet. It's a very slow um, change. Other more dramatic changes are as the, the tundra changes, the, some of the uh, vegetative um, species. It becomes more woody and more prone to uh, brush fires. So they've actually had uh, lightning, which has been very rare in in the north, uh, has started to be a problem. That can ignite um, tundra fires. And this uh, is a bit of a threat to our uh, stations. <clears throat> um, we, we've had one station in Alaska already burn up in a forest fire. And uh, so that that's another factor in in these areas but direct you know climate change we don't really see that we do I've, I've, there's an animation i can show you or give you a link to which uh, shows you the difference in seismic noise <clears throat> in the very northernmost stations ones in barrow and um, uh, Saks harbor on on banks island and uh uh, Palatuk, and there's several villages that are right along the shore. And as we put more stations in, you can see a dramatic shift in the in the microseism noise as the ocean waves change from being damped by the sea ice uh, to when the sea ice melts, and then you get a lot of shore break and the, the seismic noise at one hertz uh, comes right up. And this happens in a day or two days as, as the mechanical strength of the ice um, melts and there becomes waves. So you can actually track the um, arrival and um, freeze up of the nearshore ice. And that's quite a interesting um, uh, research topic for many of the sea ice researchers and people, uh, especially for the uh, indigenous population to know when the ice is uh, safe to travel on or whether it's m melting out earlier and so on and we can track this year by year um, as it as it changes so it's you just map it against uh, satellite views but they get blocked by clouds and stuff like that we don't, we don't have that problem <laughs> that's exactly what i was just thinking like some of these people who are so used to working with satellites and to be like no we have this data from these seismometers that seems really awesome <laughs> yeah I, i'll give you a link to the, the slide yeah and you know you were talking about doing uh, some studies with these noise and microseisms and that kind of thing i 
seem to remember a while back uh, an animation or a little article about actually locating large storms with noise from the network too, right? That's right. Yeah, when big hurricanes or uh, pressure cells <clears throat> move along in the ocean, they d generate uh, large uh, swells, and these you can actually do a, a back projection or a beam forming from the array and identify the source of the uh, uh, noise. So that's uh, this whole beam forming aspect was imagined uh, with the transportable array, but was never there was never a dense enough network to actually try that. And that's been one of the more, I would say, significant um, results or capabilities of the array is this, uh, and, and it's used not just with our array now, but um, several uh, large arrays like the HiNet in, in Japan, but the transportable array and even China array, although there's some difficulty in getting data access from them. But the people put these together and, and are able to <clears throat> a kind of look back uh, at the source of very large earthquakes and then map out the way the earthquake ruptures both in, in space uh, in two dimensions and, and, and also in time. So you see patches break and then another patch break further north. And this is advancing quite a bit of theories in, in how uh, very large megathrust uh, events work on different kinds of subduction zones. And that's, a, I think, one of the more important contributions to public safety is to understand how these uh, really threatening earthquakes work. How often do they occur? What kinds of ruptures are they? Is, are there any telltale signs ahead of that? It's not really earthquake prediction, but it's if you can recognize that the subduction zone is becoming restless, then uh, you, you have a better chance of uh, being prepared. Right, and so I guess that, that really leads into, uh, listener Michael asked what the top three significant discoveries you thought were from the transportable array. And I know you had mentioned back projection, and that seems like a pretty significant result. It is, yeah. It's, it's quite a, it's a complicated uh, process to develop um, the view or, or to do the mathematics of uh, kind of solving for uh, where the waves come from. But the result is easily interpreted by uh, non-specialists. So you can see this map, uh, even laymen can see a map of, of what's rupturing and, and how this jumps around and how it may uh, lead to um, better understanding of earthquakes. So I, I think that's a, a significant one. The, the question always in these kind of earthquakes is how come a magnitude seven and a half uh, becomes an eight or becomes a nine? Uh, why, and if, if it can become a nine, why doesn't it just keep going? What stops a big earthquake? So these, these views of how the earthquake uh, actually ruptures um, are, are important clues to the to the understanding. So that's one big one. The I think the one that we expected to get is uh, a tomography, which is a standard uh, oil company technique or P wave tomography, where you just time the arrivals of the first waves that that impact on the stations, and you can do an inversion process and and determine the structure. But uh, uh, Folks in San Diego, uh, Burdick and uh, et al. Have, have done a lot of these big maps um, as the TA has mar marched across the entire continent. And, and producing that map was 
the primary goal of the of the transportable array. The project is you know hundred million dollar uh, effort, but that was the the thing that drove it, and uh, they've been successful in in doing that and uh, mapping <coughs> structure depth to moho. These constrain lots of geophysical uh, uh, problems and and uh, structures within the, the lower 48. So that that's an important result. Um, then I would say the third one is is an extension of this tomographic uh, thing using P waves, uh, sort of in the same way that uh, the P wave tomography works, almost like an MRI, the same medical imaging type of uh, technology. But uh, some people in, in <laughs> curiously, the physics department of UC Boulder, uh, which is not really part of the <laughs> geophysics department, um, got interested and tried to apply the mathematics of quantum mechanics to um, the way uh, these waves were propagating back and forth, and they used cross correlations of, of sort of standing waves or waves that would just arrive. They didn't necessarily have to be uh, from an earthquake, but they could uh, identify through a mathematical correlation that that this wave passing this station also arrived at another station a little bit later, and they could use that in a big inversion process to image much more shallowly and in much more comprehensive fashion, even without earthquakes. So this was ambient noise uh, tomography, and it's it's uh, mathematically possible, but uh, takes uh, pretty good data, pretty clean data sets, and not a lot of gaps to be <clears throat> able to run these these algorithms. And the transportable array uh, was clean enough that this, this method um, could sort of work, and I, I think that technique is is now applied in m many different places. But it's it's a little hard to explain uh, how it works. But uh, <laughs> I'm happy the physicists <laughs> came to our rescue, <laughs> did something useful. <laughs> um, so we've had a couple of listeners, uh, Daryl and David, have asked how they can be involved in the transportable array. I mean, is there's still citizen science to be done? I'm guessing. Uh, there is. Um, so, you know, we got uh, people, uh, students, undergraduate students involved in the uh, uh, siding aspects. Right now in Alaska, <clears throat> that's pretty much limited to uh, professionals. These This uh, very <laughs> serious effort to fly around in a helicopter and put stations <laughs> in. Uh, you know, these guys are, are trained expedition leaders. You know, that's, uh, that's a difficult uh, thing that you don't get invited on. But uh, <laughs> I think one of the, you know, other aspects is sort of understanding um, in your own region where there are earthquakes, why there are earthquakes, and things like that, I think, have have a lot of <clears throat> uh, interest and and. Uh, can be developed into a kind of a curriculum that, that the public can participate in, but it's 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 a little bit difficult. We don't really, as far as the transportable array goes, um, have a lot of I would say good ways for uh, volunteers because uh, the scale of the operation requires lots of um, 
you know, serious effort day in, day out. It's not a thing that you can come in and uh, right. plant a few trees or something. It doesn't really work that way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know there are a few projects. Uh, Matt Hall has this pick this online where he's trying to get uh, crowdsourcing of picking seismic horizons and all kinds of things. It'd be kind of interesting to try to come up with something like that. But just dealing with the massive amount of data and getting the tools installed to get up and running with any kind of seismic data is a real challenge. That's right. It doesn't really lend itself to um, casual observers, but I, I like to think about that a little bit more because I think there probably are some some avenues. Um, Mike Williams at the University of Massachusetts Amherst uh, had some pretty good exercises where he would assign a student uh, a station of one of the TA stations, and then uh, the whole class would get a different kind of station. And then uh, every, uh, I think it was about every week, they would look at an event and see, okay, so how come this station is different from that station? And the students would come to learn oh, well, this is this one is uh, in a sediment valley, or this one has noise sources, or this one has uh, is just further away. And, and so they would learn <clears throat> the kind of um, characteristics of each station as a listening post and, and what it was like. And so that became a way to inform them about this sort of, could be instrument effects, it could be environmental effects, it could be just the nature of the source and propagation became interesting. So I think when you put all those together, it's more uh, more of a package than just the raw, you know, trying to show what a P wave looks like and an S wave looks like. That's There's a lot more, in my view, uh, to the measurement and, and the instrumentation um, that you have to sort out and understand. Right. So... We have a couple of last questions from from listeners that we want to fit in uh, before we let you go. I know that we don't want to take too much of your time, but listener Thomas had a great question. Uh, he said he wanted to know the best animal plus seismometer story from the project. <laughs> there, there have been a couple. Uh, of, of course, in Alaska, there's always uh, we take quite a few precautions for bears because the bears are... Uh, not always that uh, enthusiastic about having a seismic station on top of their <laughs> knoll that they happen to like and, and so on. So, but uh, I would say, you know, there was a, uh, some funny ones that we had where uh, in Olympic Peninsula and Olympic National Park, we were trying to install seismic stations near uh, in a horse pasture, which was not that unusual, and, and the horse kept taking the boxes, dragging them across the, the corral. <laughs> so, so you get some unexpected uh, support. But I think uh, one of the ones uh, amongst the team that most people remember uh, is a, so when we're, we're guys are working on the stations and one happens not to work, the service team goes out and, and uh, one of the uh, service engineers is particularly colorful in his uh, reports that he files uh, each time he visits <laughs> a station. And, and he reported that, well, you know, this station had dropped offline and he went there and he came to find that, the, well, it was a uh, trailer house and uh, 
didn't seem like anybody had been around there for a long time and the power had gotten turned off so our satellite dish uh, was no longer working you know the only sort of uh, sign that anybody had even been there there was a cat uh, in the window and so he went went there and <clears throat> couldn't find anybody around and uh, had to basically set up some solar panels because the power wasn't going to be on and and so on, and came back the next day, and, and this and that. Never found anybody there, and said, well, now I got the station running in autonomous mode. We don't need the power. And everyone on the team <laughs> said, what about the cat? What, what happened to the cat? <laughs> and the cat was, the cat was okay. <laughs> Till the bear got him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, and I guess along that line then, uh, listener Martin asked what the, the single biggest technical obstacle was uh, during the project. And uh, we've covered bits and pieces of this before, but if you had to put your finger on one thing that was the most difficult to sort out or the most recurring uh, problem, what was that? Probably the most, so early on it was uh, data communications and how you could set up uh, reliable uh, real-time data links and that has remained a complicated challenge in Alaska where there is no infrastructure uh, that we solved in in Alaska by spending lots and lots of money uh, so <laughs> we, we, we found a satellite based data transmitting uh, solution that involves a very simple little antenna that you can aim at the sky and and it can deliver 350 kilobit uh, data for, uh, but it costs a thousand dollars a month, and uh, so it's <laughs> per station. <laughs> so that's that's an expensive one. But I think the biggest technical challenge <clears throat> is the power uh, for a remote autonomous station in Alaska it requires a complex uh, combination of, of solar panels with a big bank of batteries that. Uh, charges up during the summer and then is is on its own basically through the winter and has to be able to survive complete uh, um, submersion in snow where the solar panels don't see the sun for uh, months at a time and in this case we had to develop a fairly complicated hybrid stack of batteries lithium-ion batteries as well as um, uh, AGM batteries and a uh, complex uh, charging circuit and power management a thing that's monitored by uh, text messages coming via uh, iridium satellites. So it's that was a complicated thing to to put together, and and we are pretty satisfied with the the way it worked last winter. I think we can do better. There was a few minor faults in the in the power system, but uh, it, we went down a few other alleys in trying to solve that problem with possible fuel cell generators and and other elaborate systems, but uh, batteries turned out to be uh, the way to go. And we, we put a ton of batteries at each station, literally. <laughs> that's, that's what I've learned from geophysics, is that it's all batteries. <laughs> yeah, if anybody asks you to help on a seismic experiment, tell them you can't lift more than 50 pounds. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I guess the, the last question then that I had for you was, where do you see seismology or maybe more specifically seismic instrumentation in the next 10 to 20 years? 
Well, I, I would like to see uh, the seismic instrumentation become uh, much more uniform, much more modern. There's a lot of old equipment that's out there. Uh, and I think this can become possible uh, so that the, the technical aspects of the equipment produce better data and we'll be able to solve uh, uh, some of the lingering problems which are hampered by resolution, uh, timing, and uh, instrument fidelity. So I, I think the instruments are getting a lot better. The, the, there's a convergence of some of the technologies in both the sensing as well as the data loggers and the data communications are, are developing, but they have not been knitted into a really cohesive, well-integrated uh, package. And I think that's the the challenge is to do that <clears throat> on a large scale. So to give you an example, um, strong motion recording uh, in urban settings could be quite uh, easily facilitated if we were to put an instrument at every Starbucks. It's the sort of exact <laughs> match of uh, distribution. The, the, the stores are in urban areas in, in a tight cluster and not so much everywhere else. They have power, they have internet, you know, it's, it, would, it would be a perfect thing. But it would require something like, uh, in the same way the TA is, it operate, has to operate at a big scale where you can do things and engineer a very optimized solution uh, for that uh, particular thing. And it can't be sort of one-off 20 or 30 instruments that are more general and therefore not really customized for the particular thing. So, so, so we need to get <clears throat> the, the scale of our science uh, matched up with the instrumentation. Great. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to, to join us and answer all these questions. Uh, it really is an absolutely amazing project, and I'm looking forward to seeing all the results that are going to keep coming out for many years. My pleasure. I'm glad you're interested. All right. Well, I thought that was a really fun interview, and I learned quite a bit. And I just couldn't imagine trying to <laughs> run this entire project. I just have to say, I hope that kitty cat's still okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Will will link in a lot of the, the videos and so on that he mentioned into the show notes, as well as I'll link in some of the neat animations, the ground motion animations yep, excellent. from the array as well. Yeah. So, Shannon, I think that means it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! Yay! Sorry. I can't reach my cowbell. <laughs> <laughs> um, and for this week, you picked out a paper that has been in the news some. Right, exactly. So I thought that's maybe why we do it, and we're just going to quickly go over it since the transportable ray was so interesting, and we had so many listener questions to get to. Um, so this is was in Nature, and this is just a Nature news blurb about geologists spy an eighth continent, Zealandia. And so, I don't know if you've heard about this. It was on, I think it was on NPR the other day, and everybody's been talking about this new continent. Yeah, so I actually hadn't heard about this. I've been kind of down in a hidey hole all week. It's <laughs> because uh, the internet so was broken. That's why you couldn't hear about it. <laughs> right. So this is based on a GSA paper that just came out mm -hmm. uh, called Zealandia, Earth's Hidden Continent. And uh, it's by Mortimer et al., uh, from, all from GNS. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the idea is that there is 
an eighth distinct continent. Right. And if you haven't figured it out already, it's where New Zealand is. <laughs> right. Uh. <laughs> um, so this new continent, I mean, what's interesting is that when you read this, we talk about the use of the word continent and how it doesn't actually have quite the same significance in terms of geographers versus geologists. Your Europe and yeah. Asia being the main thing, right? Because that's one continent to us. <laughs> right. But not to geographers. And, well, and even among the fields, they say there's not really an accepted definition. <laughs> Which is so weird because it's one it's like the first thing you talk about, you know, plate tectonics and continental crust. And what? We don't have a definition for this? <laughs> Yeah, it seems like there should be a... Uh, I, I'm sure there are some definitions around, but it's one of those things that's debated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... <laughs> yeah, that was interesting yeah. in and of itself. Yeah, that was interesting, like you said. But first of all, Zealandia, great name. Uh, <laughs> but second of all, how do you find the lost continent of Zealandia? Uh, well, you do things like look at satellite gravity mm -hmm. and bathymetry data. I didn't want to bring the geoid into this, but... <laughs> Yeah, it's a bumpy thing, I, Shannon. I know. I don't like to talk about it, obviously, but it really helped. Um, so the big deal is continental crust and oceanic crust, big density differences, right? Very big density. We're talking about uh, crust that's very rich in silica versus very basaltic crust. Right, exactly. And so by using some of these remote sensing techniques... Uh, you've, they've basically been able to outline this Zealandia, and this actually isn't a new, a new idea. This has been around for quite some time. Right, but this paper kind of had a really nice compilation of some of the quantitative right. bits surrounding this. So looking at the bathymetry around the area, you can even see that this area is slightly raised from the seabed, as well as having a lower density indicated by the satellite gravity indicating that it is a more siliclastic crust right and so it it's actually quite large um if you look at this compared to australia and so where did this guy come from when did it break off you know why is it its own continent and so um this guy came from gondwana and it rifted away from that continent about 100 million years ago and so it's just this little, well, I say little bitty, but, you know, size of Australia, continent that got ripped off of Gondwana, and it says today only 6% of it remains above the water, so basically New Zealand and New Caledonia is what you can see of Zealandia. Right, and I mean, I guess before we really thought of this as kind of a collection of continental fragments and mm -hmm. islands, and not such a cohesive thing, but the data here points to this being a distinct block. Right, exactly. And, I mean, if you're having trouble imagining this, imagine just draining the earth of all its water, which is what they talk about, and you would definitely see this big raised area that is coherent. And that's this eighth continent, I guess. Right, and remember, as you're draining the ocean, it's going to go the other way, <laughs> if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. <laughs> God. <laughs> I couldn't resist, could you? <laughs> no. No, you have to get that right in your simulation. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, so the idea here, though, is that 
if we're going to call this a distinct continent, we all have to agree on it. And they say it's probably going to be an uphill battle. Right, because it's just going to be people adopting it as we move forward and saying eight continents and using this Zealandia, which I can't get over. It sounds like a science fiction book. <laughs> but <laughs> right. But I mean, besides that, so what's the deal, you know? Yeah, so they actually interviewed somebody from Monash University in Melbourne, and uh, they said that claiming that Zealandia is a continent is a bit like stamp collecting. So what? <laughs> I mean... Which is... I mean, that, that's a pretty harsh critique, even for a scientific review. <laughs> yes, it is. I mean, I get it. I guess the, the fact that like it's always sort of been there, and it's kind of under the water, and it doesn't really change how we're viewing that landmass maybe that's the so what but it's also kind of cool because it is pretty large it's a pretty large area yeah and that shows you that in 2017 we still might not have some of the fundamental <laughs> concepts about our planet oh, nailed down so disturbing <laughs> but that's also <laughs> the exciting reason why you should study geology exactly yep. something new every day exactly so yes <laughs> Well, there you go. That was your Fun Paper Friday abbreviated version. <laughs> uh, if you have a fun paper that you would like us to talk about or anything else that you'd like to write in, in terms of feedback, we really enjoy reading it. You can also send us audio comments, and we would absolutely love it if you went to the iTunes store and wrote a review. It looks like several of you have, and we had some really nice reviews in there. We appreciate it because that helps other folks find the show. So, Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, send us your audio comments or your regular typed-out comments. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. As always, we're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And we're usually hanging out in the Slack chat room, swung.rocks on the Don't Panic channel. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our